Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Uh, today we're starting a new series, and it's, uh, it's just going to be four weeks through the month of May. We're going to walk through the book of Ruth together. And uh, anytime we do a series based on a book of the Bible, um, I, I don't try to outdo God. If God just called the book of the Bible Ruth, I'm not going to get crazy with what we call the series. It, so we're calling the series Ruth. How about that? Um, and so through the month of May, we'll be in a series called Ruth where we're just walking systematically through uh, this book of the Bible. And it really is a, a great book. It's four chapters, so we're going to do one chapter per week over the next few weeks. And my challenge to you is to do this for me. Uh, Before next weekend, read Ruth chapter 2 and maybe read it a couple times. Um, It is not a challenging read. It's not a difficult read. This is a narrative. It's a story. And so it's easy to jump right into it. Um, And when you look at the book of Ruth, it really is a succinctly written, well-written book. It's a well-written story. Um, and this takes place in Jewish history during the time of Judges. So it takes place during the book of Judges. Um, and this is kind of a dark season of history for Israel. It comes between the time that they occupy the promised land and uh, the time before they had a king. So before King Saul became king of Israel, there was this, this season where they were led by judges. So God would raise up leaders in Israel to do certain things, to lead for a season, to bring the nation out of slavery or to implement some sort of change. And this is when the book of Ruth takes place. Um, There's some question about who wrote the book of Ruth. Rabbinic tradition says that it was Samuel, the prophet, who who, uh, wrote the book of Ruth. But if you read the book of Ruth all the way through, what you see is it talks about David being king as if it's already happened. So some people believe that Samuel wrote part of the book of Ruth, and then another author came later and added the portion about David being king. Um, But whatever the case is, um, it's been canonized as part of Scripture, and it's an incredible story that tells a couple things. It tells uh, the the two primary um, themes of the book of Ruth are um, redemption and kindness. And we see these two themes throughout over and over and over and over and over in, in, in the book of Ruth. And both these things are really important, and we're going to touch on kindness a lot today, and we'll spend just a moment on redemption, because we really get into that in the next couple of weeks. Um, so this, this story is such a great story, and we see shadows of Jesus throughout. We see pictures of, oh, that's us, in the, the meta-narrative of redemption that Jesus, that God is telling, and that Jesus is the hero of. We see ourselves as as part of this story, we see Jesus as part of this story. So as we're reading through this together, I just want you to be thinking about what part am I playing in this? Who am I if, if I was a character in this story? So we're going to start in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 today. And it says this, In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, immediately in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it's setting the scene, it's setting the tone. And it's interesting because it says, um, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in Moab. A um, couple things I want to point out. Number one, the fact that they use the word sojourn means that they were going to a country that they probably would not be very welcomed in. They were, um, they were refugees, and they had no support system. So this family was making a decision to leave what they knew, where they were from, to go to a land that they would probably not be welcomed with open arms. 
And so they're sojourning there. It's not like a vacation. It's not like a little getaway. Uh, They're making conscientious decision. The other thing we see is it says, it's interesting because it says there was a famine in the land. And so it's talking about the, 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 really, this whole general area. But the town that they lived in was Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means house of bread. And it's so interesting to me to think that there was a famine in the house of bread. Because if you lived in the house of bread, would you ever imagine there would be famine? Probably not. And I think for this family, they had to have imagined, again, this is a little bit of conjecture, I'm just guessing a little bit, but they had to have this mindset, God, why would you let this happen? The the position we're in, we live in Bethlehem, it's a house of bread, how could you let this happen? I, I never could have envisioned I would be in this place at this point of life that I'm in. And some of you might relate to that a little bit. You might say, man, I'm in my 40s. Why am I still having to borrow money from my parents? I'm I'm in my 50s. We've been married for 20 years. Why are we still having marriage problems? Um, And I've been in this career a long time. Why would I get laid off? I do a good job. I do good work. God, why would you let this happen? I should be beyond this place in life, but here I am. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. I told somebody before, I'm 41 years old, and when I was a kid, I thought 40 was old. Does anybody else relate to that? And now I'm 40, and like college students think I'm old, which is weird. Um, but when I was younger, I used to think when I'm 40, I'm going to look different, I'm going to feel different, right? Like I'm going to be mature when I'm 40. And I got to 40, and I'm like, no, I'm still an idiot, right? Does anybody else, does anybody else still relate to that? Okay, thank you. And, and I've got bad news. If you're my age or younger, I already know what's going to happen. When I get to 60, I'm still going to feel like an idiot. Does anybody else, right? It's going to happen because we assume it's going to look different. It's going to feel different. And I think that's what happens in our lives sometimes. We go, hey, I'm living in the land of bread. It's going to be perfect. I'm not going to have issues. I'm not going to have problems. And then we get there and we go, why am I still having problems? So there's a famine in the land of bread, in the house of bread. And they leave there. They sojourn in Moab. Um, and I'll get into Moab in just a second, but this is not a good fit. Moab, geographically, <clears throat> was to the east of Judah, where Bethlehem was located. And so for this family to relocate, they had to go north around the Dead Sea and then south into Moab. So it was a long journey. It was difficult. Uh, they didn't just jump on a plane or a train, uh, and it took them a little bit to get there. In verse 2, it says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, this is interesting. Again, I told you this is a succinct book. It tells the story quickly, because even in this moment, it's giving their names. And just understand, names in in Judaism, in Jewish culture, are very important, because their names told a little bit about where they came from, but it also told a little bit about where they were going. It helps, um, it wasn't just a name or a label, it was very much part of their identity. And so their names part, tell part of the story. Um, and it's interesting too, because it says that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. So in that one sentence it says uh, what tribe they were part of, what town they were from, and what clan they were part of in this moment. So it's telling this story all in this one one, just a couple of sentences in this one passage. It's interesting because the name Elimelech, the, the patriarch of this family, his name is, means my God is king, which is pretty great. I love that. My God is king. Uh, his wife's name, Naomi, means sweet or pleasant. And literally translated, it means my delight. Um, their sons had unfortunate names, though. 
And some people will say that, um, that maybe their names weren't in the original text, but they were added later for effect. Uh, but the names Malon and Kilion, actually the literal translation means sick and wasting. Like that doesn't bode well, right? <laughs> We've got a lot of faith in you, son. That's why we named you sick. We think you're going to be something someday, but probably not anytime soon. So that's why we're naming you wasting, right? So I don't know why the names were given to those boys, but that's the names that were given. So again, we're getting a picture of what's going on. So they went into the country of Moab and remained there. They, they stayed there. They settled there. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 3, it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, two, uh, these took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women or the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, uh, I want to take just a second and talk about this, because um, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Elimelech. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about his background. But when we look at Jewish tradition and rabbinic tradition, what we see is there is a, a bigger backstory of Elimelech than what we see in Scripture. Now, again, uh, this is extra biblical, so it does not have the same weight as the Bible, but it can shed a little bit of light, give us some insight as to at least what the Jewish people believe about him. The name Elimelech, like I said, means my God is king. But in Jewish tradition, they don't call him Elimelech. They pronounce his name Elimelech. And that means something very different. It actually means the kingship belongs to me. So can you see how that might shift the narrative of the story just a little bit? Uh, Jewish tradition tells us that Elimelech was a guy that aspired for authority. He probably was someone with some notoriety in his area, in his town, but he wanted more. Does anybody know somebody that wants to be boss? Does that make you a little bit nervous when that's what they're aspiring for? Everything they're doing is trying to get ahead. I just, if I'm the boss, I just want to be in control, right? And it makes me just a little bit nervous when somebody says, that's what I want to do. I want to be in charge of everybody. I'm like, oh. I don't know if you should be in charge of everybody, if you want to be in charge of everybody. Um, and this is where Elimelech was. And so Jewish tradition casts him in a different light than what we see him as. Um, Jewish tradition says that um, Elimelech was, was cursed because of um, his decision to take his family into Moab. And uh, Jewish tradition also says that his boys were cursed for taking Moabite wives. Um, so even though they moved there to try to survive the famine, and we see the biblical narrative, there's the, the outside Jewish narrative that says, hey, these guys were not holding up their end of the bargain. They were not being honoring to God. And so it's interesting when we look at this. Now, there's a couple of reasons why taking a Moabite wife was a bad thing. There's two primary reasons that uh, they were in conflict. The nation of Moab was in conflict with the nation of, of of Israel. Uh, the first was this, and I'm not going to get into the whole story. It's too long today. Um, but in, in Christian and Jewish history, there was a man named Abraham. Now, if you're new to church or you're not familiar with the Bible stories, that's okay. This guy, Abraham, was a big wig. Can I say it like that? He was, he was a big deal. Uh, he, had a son named, uh, he had a son named Isaac, and he had a son named Jacob, and these are kind of the, the big three of the patriarchs of the faith. Um, but Abraham had a nephew named Lot, and Lot kind of made some bad decisions. Uh, his relationship with his uncle was strained, and one of the things that happened in his life was he ended up having an incestuous relationship with his two daughters, and they had 
kids. And their kids were named Moab and Ammon. And the Moabites and the Ammonites have a long history of conflict with the Israelites throughout Scripture. So what we see is, number one, um, God couldn't bless them because of the Genesis, the beginning of their story. Uh, because where they came from, God had, um, God had a hard time blessing their country. So they were in conflict. The second thing we see is that when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, the, the, the Moabites they opposed, they opposed Israel. They actually came into conflict with Israel. They didn't offer aid or support to Israel as they came out of Egypt. And because of that, God, God instituted some pretty harsh uh, punishments on them. And so we see these two reasons are enough that, that, that these guys should have known better than to intermarry with Moabites. Um, so again, painting the picture here, they're in this country. They're there 10 years. Uh, they took Moabite wives, and then all of a sudden, the husband dies, and the boys die, and they are left, the mom, Naomi, and these two daughters, or these two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Naomi. Now, this is, I mean, Oprah, Orpah and Ruth. Now, this is just a side note. Um, you know Oprah Winfrey, right? She's, we all know she's the Antichrist. We, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Some of you are like, hey, you be quiet. I just do whatever Oprah says. Um, so, Oprah Winfrey, her actual name on her birth certificate is Orpah, but it was mispronounced so often, she just went with Oprah, and that's a true story. So her actual name is Orpah, named after this character in Scripture, um, but people just kept messing it up, she just went with that. So what we see here is this position that Naomi and her two daughters are in a tough space. Now, this day and age was very different than what we live in today because of because of their gender, because they were women, there were restrictions on what they could do, on positions they could hold, on how they could earn money. There was restrictions on how, owning land and property, all kinds of things. And because of this, they were very marginalized. So when her husband dies and when her sons die, she has to think, this is hopeless. I've got no future. Um, my, my daughters-in-law, they don't have a future. We're in bad shape. This is where we pick it up in verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in all the fields fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she had heard things were going well back home. Maybe we should go back home. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So they set out, they decide it's time for us to go home. There's nothing for us here. Uh, Things are getting better back there, so let's had that direction. And before they have that conversation, she stops and we move into verse 8 and it says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now this is really important. Um, a couple of things I want to point out. Number one, she said, go return to your mother's house is what she said. So go back to your mom's house because maybe there, there's a safety net. Maybe when you get there, um, you're going to be able to find a husband. And that's what she says. May you find rest in the house of your husband. So her prayer for her daughters-in-law is, I want you to get remarried. I want you to have a life. I want you to have children. Um, but what we see here is she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. And this seems like a nice sentiment, right? May the Lord deal kindly with you 
as you dealt with the dead and with me. Now, this is such a beautiful statement, though, because what she's saying is um, the same way, the same grace, the same love that you showed my sons in their death and me in their passing, I hope God gives you that same level of grace and love and mercy. Now, the thing we see here is this word kindly is translated from a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word it has a, an, incredible, an incredibly deep meaning to it. Um, the word is hased, and this word hased, um, it, it's hard to translate into English. So in, what we see in the Old Testament is many times it's the word that's used to describe the love of God for the people of God. Um, and so if we look in the New Testament, so the Old Testament is Hebrew, and the New Testament it's Greek. In the Greek, the word that we use to describe the love of God for his people commonly is agape. Now, the Greek language is much easier to translate into English because the Greeks dealt with abstract thinking differently than Hebrews did. So in the Hebrew language, they dealt with, con they dealt with uh, concrete ideas. So it was hard for them to take an abstract thought and translate it into language that we understand today. So this word said is difficult for us to translate, but in a nutshell, um, basically what it means is kindness, mercy, or loving kindness. Now again, that does not do it justice at all. This word is used uh, 239 times in the Old Testament, and it's based in covenantal relationship. Now, I'll explain what that means in just a second, but hased is a steadfast, rock-solid faithfulness that endures for eternity. Two things you need to know about hased are this. Number one, it's given and received in the context of covenant relationship. And it's not just limited to individuals, it can also be communities. So, um, so a community of people, a group of people, can be the, the, the recipients or the givers of hased, uh, this kind of love, this loving kindness. Um, we see it given from individuals of power and Two people who maybe aren't in power or authority. Um, we see it reciprocated. We see it given. And so the first thing we see, it's to be given and received in the context of relationship. So those relationships can be corporate or individual, but that's the context it's given in. Um, it's also, number two, intended to be reciprocated and propagated. So what that means is this. Um, when someone gives me... A, a, this said love, this, this loving kindness, this mercy, all these things that are wrapped into said, um, when they give it to me, the expectation is that it's given back. Now, this is one thing you have to understand. said is not based on a feeling. It is based on a choice. It's based on a choice to be in relationship with someone else. So even if you don't feel like loving, said says you love anyway. Even if you don't feel like holding up your end of the relationship, Hased says you hold up your end of the relationship anyway. It's based on more than just a feeling. So it's intended to be reciprocated, but then the other thing is it's intended to be propagated. So you've heard the phrase, pay it forward, and that's what we're to do with Hased. We're not just supposed to receive it and give it back to the people that we receive it from and, and give it and expect that they're just going to give it back to us. But what we're supposed to do is pay it forward without the expectation that they're ever going to love us or treat us well. And again, we're getting into some hard stuff here today. This is not easy stuff. This is hard stuff that we're walking through. But this is the way that God loves us. He loves us with a Hased love. Because how many of you know sometimes you're not easy to love? but God loves you anyway. I'm not always easy to love, but God loves me anyway. Thank God that he loves me anyway, right? So what is the difference between a covenant and a contract? The world we live in today is based in many ways on contracts, 
relationships in many ways are based on contracts. Because a contract basically says we're going to enter into an agreement together, and if you break your end of the agreement, then the agreement is null and void. If I break, break my end of the agreement, the agreement is null and void. Okay? So our relationship is only as good as your word or my word. And at that point, then the relationship is broken. With covenant, both parties agree to hold up their end regardless of whether the other party keeps their part of the agreement. A violation of a covenant by one party doesn't matter as far as the other party's responsibility to continue to do what they agree to do. So listen to it in this way. Uh, we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? We're adopted in, grafted into the family of God. And so what happens is we carry a contractual mindset into our relationship with God. And we go, okay, God, I'm going to come to church a couple times a month. I might even drop something in an offering bucket. And when I do, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. Now I expect you to hold up your end of the bargain, God. And what that means is I need to be healthy. I need you to take care of my family. I want the promotion at work, right? And if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I don't have to hold up my end of the bargain. And so God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want or the way we expect him to. And we go, see, this thing is worthless. I knew it. I'm never going back to that church, right? Because it's a contract. Now, covenant says, uh, I'm committed to you in relationship whether or not you hold up your end of the bargain. So, again, in our walk with Christ, we come into relationship with Christ, and we go, man, I've blown it. I've blown my end of the bargain. I messed up. I sinned. So now God's not going to hold up his end of the bargain. Why would I even bother keeping this thing up? But what we don't understand is that covenant relationship. We don't understand has said. Because God is committed to us even when we mess up. God says, I'm holding up my end of the bargain even if you don't hold up your end of the bargain. So once you're a child of God, you might stumble. Let me say it this way. Once you're a child of God, you will stumble. You will mess up sometimes. You will not be perfect. But that does not mean that the relationship ends. That does not mean that 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 covenant is broken. What it means is, since you're in covenant relationship, God's holding up his end even if you mess up sometimes because that's how much he loves you. That's how much he chooses to love you in spite of you and in spite of me. Does that make sense to anybody? No, it does not, I guess. But again, that contract says, you do for me and I'll do for you, and then when this doesn't work, the contract's broken. But it said works because covenant relationship. Because we choose to love even when we don't feel like loving. In Isaiah 54, 10, this is God speaking to his nation. He says, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now listen to this. I love the fact that he uses mountains and hills as his standard. He says, the mountains, which are the most unmovable thing, the most firm thing in the world, the mountains may be moved or shaken. The hills may be moved or shaken, but my love for you is more firm than the mountain. What he says is my steadfast love, my said for you cannot be shaken. It's easier to move a mountain than it is to move my love for you. That's what God says about you, which is pretty incredible. He goes on, well, I'm not going to read this. It's in Psalm 136. If my homework, I gave you homework earlier, and I know you come to church because you love homework, right? Everybody loves homework. So here's your homework. Read Ruth chapter 2. But I want you to read uh, Psalm 136 as well. It's not real long, uh, but Psalm 136 
It is a powerful song. It was written as a song to be sung corporately. And, um, and what we see is it was probably written in such a way where the priest would sing a line and then the, the, the congregation would repeat a line. And so the beauty of this song in 136, Psalm 136 is that uh, it describes God. It tells how good God is. It tells what God has done. And then the response line is, for his love endures forever. And what it's talking about in Psalm 136 is the steadfast, unwavering love of God, the said love of God. And so what this psalm is intended to do is not remind God of who he is, because God doesn't have any trouble remembering who he is. It's intended to stir up something in us where we remind ourselves who God is. And we go, oh yeah, the God who, who defeats his enemies, his love endures forever. The, do, the God who responds to the prayer and the cries of his people, oh yeah, his love endures forever. And this psalm goes over and over and over and describes who God is. And it's like stirring something up, us, up in us to say, oh yeah, I've forgotten how good God is. Oh yeah, I forgot about the times he rescued me in this situation. Oh yeah, I forgot about the time that I was hurting, that I was lonely, that I was depressed, and God came alongside me. He sent something my way, sent the person my I remember his steadfast love endures forever. So read Psalm 136. If I can put this in a practical way for us today, has said in our context is an exhausted father who will drive through the night to bail his drug-addicted son out of jail for the second or third or fourth time. Hesed is a mom who spends day after day cleaning up and taking care of a child with special needs. It's a thankless job, but that mom will do it over and over and over. That's said love. Hesed is a, a, a wife and a mom who will tearfully pray for her family day after day just so they don't fall apart at the seams. Hesed is a love that can be counted on decade after decade. And it's not about the thrill of romance, but the security of faithfulness. That's what Hesed really is. And that's what we see displayed in this relationship between Ruth and Naomi. Because Naomi says, hey, you have shown Hesed. You have uh, shown a faithful love that I don't deserve. You've shown that to my sons, but you've shown it to me as well. And so this is the first instance of Hesed that we see in the book of Ruth, but it's really, really important because this is painting a picture of how God loves us and how God cares for us as well. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 10, let's continue with the story. It says, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that maybe, uh, maybe come your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, I want to walk through this with you just real quickly. Um, there's an idea that we don't understand in our culture today, but that was very familiar to people in, in Jewish culture. And the idea is the law of kinsman redeemer. And we won't get into all of it today, uh, but we will be talking about it in the next couple of weeks. And this is where we start talking about this idea of redemption. 
um, that, that's an ongoing theme. There was a part of this law of kinsman redeemer. It was called uh, the, the liverite marriage. And the liverite marriage basically said, if I can break it down this way, if I was a Jewish man and I was married and I passed away without having any children, my brother would be obligated to marry my wife, my, my widow, and any children that we had would be the heir of mine. So even though I was dead and I didn't have kids, my name would go forth. The, the things that I'd left, my inheritance wouldn't go to my wife and my, my brother, it would go to my children. Now again, this comes back to this idea that names were really, really, really important in, to Jewish culture. So this was a way that would keep my name alive. In many ways, um, in Judaism, they felt like if a name died, that it was a, it was a curse on the family. Uh, I, am, I am the last Massingale. I'm the last male Massingale. So my name will die. I'm not grieving that. I'm fine, I promise. Uh, I think my girls are rooting for us to adopt a boy just to keep it going for some reason, but I don't care that much about it, I promise. Uh, but in Jewish culture, that would be a really big deal. And so they wanted to make any provision possible to maintain a name as long as they possibly could, to make sure that that heritage went forward. And so um, what Ruth is taught, or what Naomi's talking about to her daughters when she's talking about this, because it gets kind of convoluted and a little, little, um, a little bit confusing, but what she says is, okay, girls, listen, uh, in order for you to be redeemed, I would have to have another son, but I don't have another son. I don't even have a husband. So what if I got married right now? What if I got pregnant right now? By the time the boys got old enough for you to marry, you'd be old. It wouldn't do you any good. That's what she's saying. So she's talking about this in a practical way. She's saying, this does not make sense for you to stay with me. There is no hope if you stay with me. You're going to be stuck in your state if you stay with me. And, and what a... What a beautiful woman of God, because what she says to them is, listen to this, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She says, I'm not frustrated for myself, I'm frustrated for you. I'm not mad at God because I lost my sons and husbands. I'm upset with you because, I'm upset for you because you've lost so much. I'm hurting for you. How impossible would that be if you had lost your husband and your only sons to hurt for someone else? But this is, this is the heart of Naomi. Verse 15 says this, and she said, see your sister-in-law, so she's speaking to Ruth now, she says, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, Return after, uh, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, this is a huge statement for Ruth because <clears throat> Ruth had an opportunity to reclaim her old life and to maybe find a husband and find a future if she just went back to her old home. Um, where she was raised in Moab, it's, what she knew before she got married was you know, her, her God, her family, her life, 
it was, it was, there was a level of comfort there. And so when she says to Ruth, or to Naomi, I choose to follow you, what she's saying is, I'm leaving behind my old gods. I'm leaving behind my old family. I'm leaving behind my old friends. I'm leaving behind everything I was comfortable in to go with you to a country that I'm probably going to be looked at as an enemy because I'm, an Mo- I'm a Moabite. I know that. So I'm going to go to Judah with you and be looked at as an outcast because I'm a woman and because I'm a widow and because I'm a Moabite. I'm going to leave all that behind. She says, your people will be my people. I'm going to sacrifice for you because I love you, because I care about you, because that's what covenant relationship does. That's what said does. <laughs> what a bold statement this is by Ruth, but Again, it shows her character. It shows what kind of an incredible woman of God she really was. It says in verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So she, they get back to town, and when they do, it causes a stir because people are like, man, I can't believe they came back. It was a big deal. And the, the ladies go, it looks like Naomi. Is this Naomi? It looks like Naomi. And Naomi goes, no, 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 no. No, 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 that's not me. That's not who I am. Because remember, we talked about at the beginning, the, word, the name Naomi means pleasant, Right? joyful. And she said, that's not who I am anymore. I'm not pleasant. I'm not joyful because God has been bad to me. I must have done something to offend him because he's been bad to me. So don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because she said, God has dealt bitterly with me. And Mara, the word Mara comes from the name of a stream that was bitter. The water that came out of that spring was bitter so people couldn't drink it. And she said, that's who I am. I'm a bitter spring. That's where I'm at. And I told you before, names were really important because it told where you came from. It told where you're going. It tells a story without really knowing the story. And so Naomi says, I'm changing my story because now I'm bitter. And this is what we have to understand. Names were given in a patriarchal society so fathers could give names. No one else could. So by definition, as a child of God, the one who has the right to name you is our Heavenly Father. So we can put labels on ourselves if we want to and say, this is who I am, this is how I feel, but the only one who really has the power to name us is God. See, our circumstances may mark us, but our identity is shaped by God. See, you may be here today and you feel a little bit like Naomi did. God... Why did I get into this situation? Why did you take me here? Why did you do this with my life? Why do I feel this way? Why did I lose this? God, you've been bad to me. Why is that? But what you have to understand is your circumstances don't change who you are. God changes your identity. He shapes your identity. I want to remind you just a little bit about what Scripture says about who we are in Christ we are children of God, according to John 1.12. In Christ, we are friends of Jesus, according to John 15.15. 15. 
In Christ, we are justified and redeemed, according to Romans 3.24. According to Romans 6.6, in Christ, we are free from the slavery of sin. According to Romans 8.17, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. According to 1 Corinthians 1.2, that you are a saint. I know some of you are going, I don't think so. Let me take it a step further. Your spouse is a saint in Christ Jesus. According to 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. According to Galatians 5.1, you are free. There is nothing that can limit you or hold you back in Christ Jesus. According to Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship. You are his handiwork. He takes pride in you. And you might say, I'm imperfect. Yeah, you are. So am I. Do you think that matters to God? Some of you were here a few weeks ago when we had our series um, called Thrift Store, right? And I had this end table. And it's, it's a mess. It wasn't perfect. But it was mine, so I took pride in it, right? It was my handiwork. And this is how God looks at you. He goes, yeah, they're not perfect, but they're mine. They're my handiwork. That passage in Ephesians says that, that he created you. You are his handiwork, and he created good works for you to do in advance. So before he ever put you on earth, he knew that you would be his handiwork, his craftsmanship. And he created good works for you to do in advance because you are good. He created you that way as his child. He's ready for you to accomplish something major. And this is what we have to understand. That's what our identity is. Our, our identity is not our circumstance. Because sometimes we fail and we go, that's who I am. I'm a failure. No. Just because you fail doesn't mean you're a failure. Just because you came up short doesn't mean that's who you are. You're a child of God. Let him shape your identity. So Naomi says, I'm not Naomi anymore. I'm bitter, call me Mara. Because when I left here, I had so much. When I came back, I have nothing. In verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, if this was a movie, this would be the most depressing movie ever, wouldn't it? The movie would end and the credits would roll and you would go, I'm never watching that movie again. Because that's just a little depressing, right? This woman and her family, they, they move because of a famine. Her family all dies and now she's left penniless. She's left alone trying to figure out how she's going to live. See, in Ruth and Naomi's mind, I can imagine them thinking, this is where the story ends. But one of the most encouraging things we can see is the very last line from this passage. It says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Um, <clears throat> I spent several years uh, on staff at a church in a very, very rural town. There are lots of farmers in our church. And one of the things I knew about these farmers is they have this love-hate relationship with harvest. <clears throat> See, they worked all year for harvest. They planted. They, they prepared the soils. They did all the things they needed to do. They were testing. They were making sure everything was optimum to get the best harvest possible. So they worked all year long to make sure their harvest was great. And then when harvest came, there was a sense of anticipation. There was a sense of hope. But there was also this understanding that I'm going to work like a crazy person 
for the next month because they would work before, they would go to work before the sun came up and they would go to bed way after the sun went down because that's what you do at harvest. But there's a sense of anticipation that, that things will be better. Maybe things will be better than last year. The harvest wasn't what we wanted last year. Maybe this harvest will be better. <clears throat> so when Ruth and Naomi came to Bethlehem, it was barley harvest, and there was a sense of anticipation. Maybe things will get better. Maybe there's reason for hope. See, every new season is preceded by the end of an old season. So maybe you're here and you're in a bad season. Maybe you relate to Naomi a little more than you wish you could. Maybe you've lost a lot. Maybe you've been disappointed. Maybe you failed. And you're going, God, this season is horrible. This has got to be the end of the story, right? This is just how things are going to play out. And I feel like God is speaking to us today. No, 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 be hopeful because we're heading into harvest season. There's reason to be hopeful that this season is shifting to a new season. There's reason to be hopeful that, that what you're experiencing isn't what the rest of your life will be like. That there's reason to be hopeful because there's a, a harvest coming. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It means it's going to be a lot of hard work. But there's reason to be hopeful that things will get better. See, I, I know that the harvest is not easy. But at the end of the harvest, there's reason to celebrate. So if you're here today and you feel like your story is over, the credits are rolling, and your story is the most depressing story ever, I've got good news for you. The credits are not rolling. This is just a chapter. It's just a season. There's more of this story to tell. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you, and we're grateful that you're good. We're grateful that we can trust you. God, we're grateful that you choose to love us in covenant relationship, in a hased kind of way, even when we blow it, even when we mess up, you still love us. And God, I pray that you would help instill that love in us, that we can love you that way, that we can love others that way, that we can understand what it means to walk in covenant with people, that we're committed to people, not just because of what they can give to us or what they can do for us, but because of our deep faithfulness for each other and for you. God, I pray for those that are here today that are in a season of their life that they feel like is the end. They feel like they've lost so much, they're hurting so deeply, that this must be how their life will be. I pray today that you would instill hope in this place. I pray that you as the God of all hope would bring hope and deliver hope into our hearts today. Let us sense it, let us feel it, but let us have a deep resolve in our spirit that you are good, that we can trust you, that you haven't given up on us yet. So God, let us know that because we're in covenant relationship, we can trust you deeply. In spite of what we feel, in spite of what we see, in spite of our circumstances around us. So God, have your way among us today. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, nobody's looking around. I just want to ask if you're here today and you say, Mel, uh, you know, I'm not really in relationship with Jesus. I I don't know what would happen to me if I died today. I don't know where I would spend eternity, but I, I know that I'm not in covenant relationship with Jesus, but I need to be. I wanna make him Lord of my life today. Now, I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you come forward. I'm just gonna pray with you right where you are. So if that's you, would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? You can put it right back down. 
you're here today and you say, I want to experience that love that you talked about, Mel. I want to know what that's like. Like I said, I'm not going to embarrass you, but you slip your hand up real high and put it right back down. Thanks. Over here on my left, I see you. Praise God. Who else? Just a few more seconds. Anyone else? Thank you. Yeah, I see you over here on my left. Praise God. Okay. I'd like every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, to say this prayer with me out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving your life and paying the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, I choose to live for you. And I'm never going back to my old ways or my old life. From this day forward, I am yours and you are mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer today and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, I just want you to know how proud we are of you, how excited we are for you, that you're taking this step and growing in your faith. And we want to help you take another step in your faith journey. Um, it's just like when a baby is born, they don't go, okay, work's done, right? Now that, that's when the work begins. It's like, okay, mom and dad, you, you got some sleepless nights, you got some diapers to change, you got some things to do. And we want to help you grow in your faith. And we're not offering to change your diapers, we're just saying, we want to help you become who God wants you to be. And so the way we can do that is by you filling out the card that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side, it says salvation. On the other side, it says need prayer. If you would, fill out the side of the card that says salvation, if you pray that prayer with us today and you meant it. Uh, and then just drop it in one of our offering boxes. We've got two offering boxes in the back of the room, one in the balcony, and one just outside these east doors. Just slip it in there. In the next couple days, one of our team is going to reach out to you. They're going to get you resources, get you plugged into relationships. They're going to help you grow in your faith. If you're watching online and you'd like to respond, or maybe you're here in the room and can't reach a card, you can simply text the word salvation to the number 555-888. When you do that, we're going to respond back to you. We're going to help you do the exact same thing. Grow in your faith, get connected in relationship and resources. They're going to help you grow. If you're here in the Indiana area, we'll connect you here at Summit Church. If you're somewhere throughout the United States or even the world, we're going to help you find a life-giving, God-believing church in your area that you can get connected with and grow in your faith. So again, thank you for worshiping with us today. And here's what's going to happen now. These guys are going to lead us one final song. And while they're singing, our prayer team is going to come forward, and they'll be on either side of the stage. And if you need prayer today for any reason at all, no matter what it may be, as we begin to sing, step out from your seat, find one of our prayer team members, and let them agree with you in prayer. And then in just a moment, when we're done singing, Pastor Todd Stanley is going to come, and he'll close us out and dismiss us. So why don't you stand to your feet all over the room? We're going to worship together one more time before we go today. Guys, I tell you this regularly. I hope you know how I mean it sincerely. I love you more than you know, and I'm so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have a great week.